Well, let's uh, pray and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for tonight and uh, thank you for the privilege of singing these uh, great hymns and choruses about the character of um, our, our God. Um, we thank you that you are the friend of sinners. Um, we thank you that you're glorious and you're good, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you that you, by your work, Holy Spirit, open the Word of God to us. And I pray you do that tonight as we discuss this issue of your kingdom come. So bless us, we pray, O oh Lord. Uh, thank you for this dear church, these sweet people. Uh, may the reality of Christ flow in and through us to the glory of, of your name. Uh, we think of these children that are being dismissed and... Um, that you, Lord, would build them and make them oaks of righteousness. Um, make much of yourself in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We can thank you for your, your kindness and uh, thank you for the incredible meal. Sam said the chicken would be good and he did not overstate it. It was phenomenal. Um, thank you for your staff, their kindness. Um, just a couple of things. I'm really glad to see that your children are able to run a little bit in church. I think that's so good. I, um, it's just fun to see them having fun. Maybe I'm, they're not supposed to run. If I, they are, then forgive me for saying that. But it's good. It's good for kids to be able to have fun at church. I like that. So we are coming to this uh, petition, uh, the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. Um, or the second petition, your, your kingdom come. So how will be your name last night? Your kingdom come tonight. I'm going to use it as just a, a, a paradigm, this statement from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 123 that asks, what is the second petition? The second petition is thy kingdom come. And it goes on and says, it's in your study guide, that, that so rule us by your word and by your spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee, preserve and increase thy church, Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee and also all wicked counsels divide against thy holy word till the full perfection of thy kingdom takes place wherein you shall be our all in all. So, so first of all, it says, so rule us by your word and by your spirit, which is that incredibly beautiful, balanced, synergistic relationship between the word and the Holy Spirit. Rule us by your word and by your spirit, which comes from Scripture. Jesus says in John chapter 4 that the Lord is worth looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so in 2 Peter 3.18, the last thing Peter writes is, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See that balance. And then, then for example, in um, Romans chapter 15, Paul, Paul says, I'm, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you're full of goodness and complete in knowledge. Therefore, you're able to instruct one another. So you see the balance and is reflected here, the Word and the Spirit. Now, here's the problem. There's only been one balanced person who ever lived, and his name is Jesus. So when somebody says, well, you're a pretty balanced person, they're lying. None of us are balanced, but we strive for this. So rule us by your word and by your spirit. The word, of course, the word of God. We, we take in the scripture uh, we, and, and the spirit being the Holy Spirit. We plead with God 
to, to by His Spirit, teach us and shape us and mold us. In Luke 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 13, this statement is made by Christ. He says this, Luke eleven thirteen. He, he says, If then you are evil... It's the companion passage to Matthew 7. If you then are evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So I'm compelled to plead, God, give me a fresh anointing, fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin was called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting. And this is what he says, two quotes by Calvin. The Spirit promised to us has not the task of inventing new and unheard of revelations or of forging a new kind of doctrine to lead us away from the received doctrine of the gospel, but of sealing our minds with that very doctrine which is commended by the gospel. Another place in the institution says this, We ought to seek our conviction in a higher place than human reasons, judgments, or conjectures. That is, in the secret testimony of the Holy Spirit. So Calvin would talk about the secret testimony of the Spirit or the illuminating power of the Spirit. And he he said, all study of Scripture apart from the anointing power of the Spirit is in vain. And I just say, sometimes we have a cold rationality, someone called it recently a flat Calvinism, that doesn't plead for spiritual empowerment and illumination. There's a guy, I've just forgotten his name, Ian Murray. Ian Murray's written some incredible books on revival. He's a Presbyterian from Australia. And this is what he says, and I think he wrote a book called Pentecost Again, Question Mark, and Revival and Revivalism. Both of them are phenomenal books. This is what Murray says, and I think he's absolutely right. Now, we're in the South, and we have taken a wonderful word from church history and have just absolutely decimated it, and the word is revival. Now, I'm a Baptist, so a lot of Baptists, every spring, they have what? Revival. And, and so, and then, and, and there's a guy, you know, going on this guy named Charles Finney, who was at Oberlin College, who was from Upper State in New York. So that's the first strike against him, Upstate New York. So, so but Charles Finney had what he called the measures. And Charles Finney said that if, if you do A, B, C, D, and E, you'll have revival. Um, that is not the teaching of the Bible. That's not what church history says. Church, church history says this, that, that, that the church goes along like this and even goes into decline and then God comes down in power and gives revival to the church. And all of a sudden, it's at a new level. And, 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 and God supernaturally does something in a week that we couldn't do in 25 years in, with normal methods. I am compelled to pray for revival. Our country desperately needs revival. I tell people all the time, every indicator of anything that smacks of any moral compass is trending down. Nothing is trending up. I don't know of anything that's trending up. We need revival. And so I look at this passage, and we should cry out, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We need revival as a country. We need, we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will shake the foundations of everything that we are. And it's part of my 
I think that it's so bad in our culture that we've grown used to it. I'm telling you, we're discussing things as being legitimate and okay that 25 years ago we wouldn't even spoken of. It is amazing to me. And, and people are yawning about it. And I'm going, man, wake up. We need revival from the hand of the living God. And, and revival basically, basically comes in church history, usually, not all the time. Sometimes God just, boom, comes down. But revival comes to people who are pleading for God to do something who are really asking God to work in their lives and in their church and their community and in their nation. And I, I, so Ian Murray has really encouraged me. You ought to read those books. They're very good books. Um, anything he writes is, is very good. There's a number of biographies on Martin Lloyd-Jones and Jonathan Edwards and so forth and so on. But, but, but so rules by your word and by your spirit. God, give me your Holy Spirit and power. Give me your Holy Spirit afresh. Take, take the word of God and make it make it alive in my eyes, not, not just a, not just a, a document, but a living word. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And this word pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And if, if I'm reading the Bible and I'm not being judged by the Holy Spirit, I'm not reading the Bible. So. Word and spirit. And then the, the result. I'm just going to mention three things. Number one, so we would submit more and more unto you. More and more. Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's desire is for me to be like Christ. You to be like Christ if you're a believer. And yet Westminster says, chapter 13, article 2, that in our members there is a continuous and irreconcilable war. There's an ongoing, continuous, and irreconcilable war that goes on and on and on in our hearts. There's a book called The Heart of a Servant Leader by C. John Miller, and let me just read two paragraphs in that, two different pages. Taught at Westminster for 30 years. Uh, says this. My, my own conviction is that the flesh is still so strong in the Christian leader that each of us needs a healthy fear of our own capacity for ruining the work of God with our unconscious pride. I am very, very much afraid of myself. And I think that's a good place to be, provided I take my fears to Jesus and ask, me, ask him to cleanse me of my will to power. Indeed, a pastor or anybody really needs to be broken before God every day or he will break up the church of God with his willfulness or to slip into spiritual death through his sloth. It's just strong stuff. These are just letters he wrote to people. Later in the book he says this, the Lord sends his Holy Spirit to slip in the back door. He goes down into the basement where he turns up the heat and he sets fires until the rising heat focus, forces us to remove the barriers and open the front door and let Jesus in. I believe that the Lord keeps right on using this backdoor approach in our growth and grace. He sets fires in our basements by putting us in limiting and painful circumstances. So, I, I, there is in my body a continuous and irreconcilable war. And so, when I, when I see the yuck in my spirit, it makes me run to the cross. And the glory and the, the goodness of Jesus freely given to me. Um, 
so I like football. And I went to seminary in Fort Worth, Dallas area. And I was there during the last three years of the Roger Staubach era with Tom Landry. So if you follow football, it was glorious. It was wonderful. So I came here, a huge Dallas Cowboy fan. I've been repeatedly disappointed, and I've, I've publicly renounced the Cowboys. I've given up on them. <laughs> so I've been delivered from Cowboy mania. And, uh, and yet in the 80s, the Cowboys had a running back that, that I think Marcus Lattimore was going to be a better running back than Emmitt Smith. And I just am so sad about Marcus Lattimore and his knee injury. And, but anyway, Emmitt Smith played at the uh, University of Florida, went to Dallas, and uh, was an incredible, durable running back. I mean, he just carried about 25, 30 times a game, ran low to the ground, low center of gravity, great running back. Not that fast, but durable. And so one season, I think it was 88, the Cowboys were just killing people. I mean, they were just, it was just, it was embarrassing they were so good. And, and I heard Emma Smith's going to miss, miss the next two to four games because of turf toe, which is an injury on your foot that you get usually on artificial turf, Cowboy Stadium. Turf toe, and I'm not a doctor, so forgive me for this, but turf toe is an inflammation of the ligaments and the joint that you get when you stub your toe on the turf. Or you push off, nobody hits you, you push off the wrong way, you stub your toe, you get turf toe. I mean, ter- here's, here's the most durable running back in the NFL who's not going to play for four weeks for the best team in the history of football. Overstatement. Because he has turf toe. And I, I was thinking of that recently, and I think, I thought, thanks be to God for giving me turf toe that nobody else sees, but I see my heart. And it drives me to Jesus. And, and, and it causes me to say, oh, God, I want to submit more and more to you because seeking God is born of desperation. If, if, you, if, you're, if, if you think you're okay, you'll never see God. You won't pray. You won't really be a servant of the Lord. Man, if you say, I've, I've, I've got to have this. So marriage, okay, just a marriage bullet point. We had a gathering of young adults that had to sign up for to get child care, and you had to be under 32 years of age, married, and we had 120 show up, and the program was, was uh, our young adult pastor interviewed my wife and I, married 34 years. And uh, he said this, what, what do you wish that you had been given when you first got married or told that, that you uh, know now? And I said, that's two things. I said, well, number one, I wish Dave Ramsey had been around when I'd been first been married. I love Dave Ramsey. I think his stuff is easy to understand. It's good. It just works. So I, I like Dave Ramsey. We teach his course all the time. Uh, so I wish that. And second, I wish somebody just told me. They told me this, but really shouted at me, communication is so hard in marriage. I meet with young couples three times before I marry them, then they have to go through a class. And I, my, my, my first meeting is always, I talk to them about the five things young marrieds argue about. In no particular order, number one is in-laws. Number two, money. I said, you've got to have a budget. You've got to honor God with your resources. Number three, children. When to have them, how to raise them. Number four was a oh a sex. I said you know men are microwaves, women are crockpots. <laughs> and I'm 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 
60, I'll be 61 Friday. It's still the same. You just punch him in anywhere, he's ready to go. You know? So, so that's, a, that, that's it's true. You know, it's just... And, and the other is communication. And so th- this young couple's be sitting there, and, and this happens about three times out of four. She smiles and says, oh, we're fine. My, my husband-to-be is such a good communicator. And I'm thinking, right. You know? <laughs> or they'll say, oh, we just love our future in-laws. Really? Well, why don't you teach marriage enrichment? Well, you, don't, you, know, you don't need to go any classes. I'm ta- let me tell you, you know the five things people f- discuss after 34 years of marriage? You ready? In-laws, <laughs> communication, children, money, and sex. Uh, it, life is humbling. I, some people say, young people say, how do you grow in humility? I said, breathe. Breathe and live. Life is humbling. Children. You, have, you know, you have children. We have two children. They're so, they have the same genetic code. They're very different, boy and girl. And our parenting, just, this is just on the side, we were like, if you're old enough, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in raising kids until my son became a teenager. And for four years, it was like we, we talked to people, we prayed, we fasted, we talked because we just didn't agree. My wife doesn't understand lazy boys. I understand lazy boys because I was one. I get it. And so it's just, you just, you do this. It's, it's just incredibly humbling. And so because of desperation, you plead, God, by your Holy Spirit, change me. So I submit myself more and more and more to you. And that prayer should be on the, the prayer of our lips until we die. Because until we die, we will struggle with a continuous and irreconcilable war. And the, the really humbling thing about life is about the time you think you've got sin A kind of sort of put to rest, sin B bites you on the backside. You know, you, you, you get old enough to where lust as a man doesn't consume you, and then you get proud and arrogant and lazy. It just keeps on rolling. The hits just keep on coming. We need Jesus. Okay, the next issue says, it says, preserve and increase your church. We sing about Christ being our friend, about the Spirit being our guide, about the Lord being our Abba Father. Absolutely, he's also the conquering king. He also says the gates of hell will not prevail against God's people. He also says in Ephesians 3, he's able to do immeasurably more than we ask or think or dream or believe. And so one of our prayers is we say, hallowed be your name is Lord, preserve and increase your church. Preserve and, and grow the next generation and raise up pillars of righteousness and oaks of righteousness. And one thing, one thing I always try to do, kind of, sort of, yeah, all the time, is I'm always trying to read a biography. And I've got some guys that I just really like, and one of them is William Carey. William Carey, we, we, we just, William Carey at the age of 30, um, 33, he goes to India, raised a poor, poor head, couldn't rub two coins together, is converted by a guy named Peter War, shared the gospel with him. Some of the no-names in history say, who's Peter War? We don't know, but he he told William Carey about Jesus. William Carey came to faith. Uh, God put the nations on his heart. He goes to India. He's 32, 33. He's there 34 years. He never goes home. He never goes home. His wife goes over pregnant. They bury a child as soon as they get there. Basically, she loses her mind 
And, and, and so for, she, she lives for 13 more years, and she has to be restrained in a chair with leather straps for about seven years. She would try to kill Carrie. She would do horrific things. She accused him of everything known to man. William Carey stood by the stuff. But because he believed that God was a conquering king, and he was going to build his church in India. And, and so he's there, listen, he's there seven years before he has his, sees his first man come to Christ, Krishna Paul. Seven years. Now, seven years in Calcutta. Now, I want you to understand, Calcutta is like Orangeburg in August times three. There's no air condition. To get away, he'd get on a barge and go five miles up the river. He, he never left. He stayed by the stuff. He buries his wife. He gets remarried to a wonderful woman named Charlotte. She lives five years. He buries her. Um, his son, some of his sons desert the faith. He stays and he does. The, listen to this. William Carey and his team translated the Bible into 48 different dialects. William Carey translated the entire Bible into Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, Hindi, Asama, and Sanskrit. The whole Bible. No education. And, 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 and when he died, and I've been to his grave. I've been to William Carey College. I went, I, they let me go into the, a room where they had his writings and his own, his own, the day of his death date, June the 9th, a couple of years ago. It was hot. I was looking at these letters. It was in a glass case, thankfully. And I was just dripping, just dripping on it. And when he died, he had put on his tombstone a couplet from a hymn by Isaac Watts. A wretched, poor, and pitiful worm on thy kind arms I fall. Like, oh God, really? But, but his prayer was preserve, increase, grow your church. That, that the knowledge of the Lord, according to the minor prophets, that the knowledge of the Lord will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And I, I've got to tell you, I want to have a vision of a conquering God who does great things. And, and, and believe him for that. And see, William Carey never saw it. He never saw it, but he was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful unto the Lord. And I just said, let's be faithful. But as we're faithful, let's call out to God to, to do that which only he can do. And then he says this. Preserve and increase your church. Next, destroy the works of the devil and all violence raised against your holy name. Destroy the works of the devil. Um... The Bible says the devil's a roaring lion in 1 Peter, seeking to devour those whom he may. So let, let me give you this il illustration. So um, I, I don't fully understand evil and how it works, and I know that evil is a servant of God. And So just let me explain it this way. When I was a young boy, oh, six or seven years old. My parents went to visit somebody and they had a German shepherd in the backyard on a cow chain. And, and the cow chain, where the dog went back and forth, uh, was barren earth. But right beyond the reach of the cow chain was, was blue, green grass, beautiful grass. So my parents said, you can play outside, but don't you dare go back there close to that dog. And I said, of course. 
no problem. So five minutes after they're in the house, I decided to slip back and see the dog. And the dog was not very friendly. And so I started, I, I knew he was on a chain. And so I started being a, kind of sassy with the dog and the dog. And all of a sudden, I, I was kind of doing stuff, making faces. And I looked down, and I was standing on barren earth. And the dog lunged at me and eight stitches fixed my ear. They rushed me to the hospital and and God did that so I could give you this illustration. <laughs> and, and, and years later, I was reading the Puritans, and the Puritans said this, Satan is like a chained dog. I said, okay, I can get that. Like a chained dog. So, so Satan has his fear of, of influence. And if I leave off the watch, and if I become disobedient, I can step in it. And so when we say, hallowed be your name, we say, Lord, by your grace, destroy the works of the devil and all violence. For example, kind of a converse look at is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Listen to this. Verse 19 and 20 says this. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. But by rejecting this, faith and a good conscience, Paul says, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You go to 1 Corinthians 5, a young man involved in incest. Paul said, I've delivered him up to the devil so his body can be destroyed, but his soul saved for the day of salvation. So, so I, I, I read this. I, Paul says, I've, I've handed, him over to, handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. And I, I just, as I... Think about this. There, there is safety and nourishment and protection in the way of the Lord. But when the church hands someone over through church discipline and or they, the word here for reject means to violently push away. They've, they've rejected these things. When you violently push away from that, then you open yourself up to the destruction by the devil. And, and so we need to be careful. There's safety in Jesus. There's destruction outside. And it's a very, very, very real thing. I, I, we don't, I don't understand enough about spiritual warfare. I, 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 we, but there's a very real devil and he wants to drink us down. Ephesians 10. I preached through this passage. It took me a few months. The, Ephesians 10, 16, the following. But th- this is one thing that hit me. Of course, you know it. Finally, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And the way I understand this passage exegetically is the evil day is talking about a period or a time in my life that's coming. And I'm telling you, evil days, difficult times are coming. And the way we withstand them is to put on the whole armor of God. We've got to stand. We've got to stand, and we stand by getting up every day and seeking out the things of God and bathing our, our minds in this word and pleading for the Holy Spirit to take it and make application. There's a statement in the 
handout from a guy named Chip Ingram. He says this, probably the most common cause of demonic influence is unresolved anger and bitterness. Churches that keep a safe distance from sin and rebellion and the occult are often safe havens for the bitter and resentful. Many Christians are not aware that unresolved anger is an open door to demonic host. Ephesians 4 is very explicit about how anger that isn't handled quickly gives the devil a foothold. Unforgiveness and unresolved conflict have devastating results, not the least of which is easy exploitation by the enemy. And let's just be honest. All of us struggle with these issues. If you're in relationships, you have problems. I was talking to Sean yesterday. I said, man, the best thing about pastoring are people. When they're kind and gracious and they're going for it. You know the worst thing about pastoring? People. You know? We all have problems. And that's why Romans says, as much as depends upon you, be at peace with all men. That's why the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And forgiveness does not lead to always reconciliation, but it means that you give a good report and you don't hold it against them and you go forward. And I, God, by your grace, destroy the works of the devil in my life. More people can be hurt and injured and destroyed through what we call respectable sins, a little book by Jerry Bridges, than, than these huge issues that are obvious to all. So I need to guard my heart. You know, you, you go through hard times. You go through hard times. So, And he says this, In every conspiracy against your holy word, Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 Take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Every thought. And, and you, you, just, you just come to the Lord. I, I think one of the most challenging statements in all the Bible is in the study guide is in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And uh, we need to be people like that. So, hallowed be your name, Almighty God, in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the, uh, the scripture that uh, teaches us to pray. Um, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bring your kingdom in our lives. Um, we we, uh, we want to finish well. We want to go strong. We want to leave a legacy for the next generation. We want to be people of brokenness and humility and joy and steadfastness. We want to uh, honor you. We want to see godliness in the, in the coming generations. God, do that. We want to see revival in our land. We want to see uh, people who profane your name and curse your name singing praises to your name. We want to see a culture that 
denigrates the sanctity of life and and, and the uniqueness of of, of, of life and, and the, the goodness of gender. We want to see those a culture that has, has really downgraded all of that come to believe there's a great creator God who made the heavens and the earth and who made us in our mother's womb and who says that we are male and female and so forth and so on. We thank you for that heritage and God let us live it out. We want to be people who economically care for people around us in tangible good ways. And would God just do that, I pray. Uh, use us. Use these, uh, these families, these young people. God, use us. Uh, let us be people who pray. Forgive us for the distractions and the busyness that keeps us from praying. In Jesus' name, amen.